Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. And welcome to LawPod. Uh, my name is Samantha Hopkins. I'm a PhD student at the uh, School of Law at Queen's and I am looking at uh, language in corporate social reports. And today we have with us all the way from the University of New Mexico, uh, Professor Harry Van Buren. Harry has published widely in the business and human rights field, looking at, among various other things, employment relationships at a personal level and the role of human resources as, st- as a strategic business department, and also the global supply chain and the impacts companies have um, on issues such as human trafficking. And he's also going to be giving a talk later on today at Queen's. Um, a very warm welcome to you. Thank you very much. It's a w- pleasure to be here. Um, so today we will be discussing the very topical intersection between business and society and the responsibilities which corporations have given their prominent role in society and indeed um, their existence within it. For those listening who might not um, be aware, would you be able to give us an overview of the reasons why business and human rights is so important today and perhaps what drew you to it as um, an area given your very eclectic background? So let me start with the uh, second part of that. I've long been interested uh, in issues related to power in organizations. I got my doctorate at the University of Pittsburgh out of a concern that employees were being exploited by their employers in contemporary employment relationships in the mid-1990s. Obviously, that trend has intensified in a lot of other uh, places. I also was on staff at the Interfaith Center on Corporate Responsibility for a number of years and worked in the area of shareholder activism, where we started work in areas such as business and human rights and the area of human trafficking. So I worked on campaigns related to commercial sex trafficking, and then we broadened our approach to include broader issues related to uh, human trafficking, such as human trafficking in the hospitality industry or in global supply chains. So what drew me to this topic was it was a topic that let me think about issues related to corporate power in a new and systematic sort of way. Now, to talk a little bit about business and human rights and why it's so important, I would make the argument that this is probably the foundational issue for folks in business ethics because there are so many issues that can be understood through a human rights lens, whether we're talking about environmental responsibility and relationships between corporations and communities, whether we're thinking about labor issues, we can even think about issues related to, human, to privacy in consumers through a human rights lens. But very broadly, business and human rights is so important because of the power of business. In many places, states are failing or near failing and don't really have the capacity to supervise the corporations in their midst. And what this means is that corporations are able to act as they see fit. They can act in ways that harm human rights or they can act in ways that benefit human rights. 
So the reason why I chose this particular topic is it builds on some of my other research interests related to corporate power, but it also implicates some of the core questions related to the line between businesses and the state. So you um, mentioned quite a bit about the the role of power and corporate Mm -hmm. power and the relation of state power and corporate power. Would you say that there is something of a link between corporations and states in that respect? As you mentioned, failing states, certainly Mm -hmm. where states are failing, corporations definitely have more space to uh, both step in and violate human rights and also potentially to protect human rights, but also states which aren't necessarily considered failing states like the UK, like the US, which also um, have been complicit in human rights abuses, would you say they have more of a role to play than corporations or an equal role to play Mm -hmm. as corporations in protecting human rights? That really addresses questions related to state capacity. So if we look at places like the USA and the UK, we might say that these are states that have strong capacities to protect human rights and to serve as standards for protecting uh, human rights. However, in my home country of the USA, we have pretty significant concerns about the direction of the current administration in terms of its commitment to protecting uh, human rights. So in a lot of uh, places, uh, you have state capacity to protect human rights, and so the corporations acting in those uh, states or operating in those uh, states have, I think, smaller responsibilities uh, associated with protecting uh, human rights. But if you look at places that don't have nearly as strong government, and that's true of many places around the world, and particularly places where you find things like conflict minerals or where companies are engaged in outsourcing, their state capacities to protect human rights are significantly smaller. And perhaps those states aren't even interested in protecting human rights because what they want to do is they want to try to attract foreign direct investment, and they fear that if they are too stringent on human rights, that's going to make it harder for investors to come in and invest in those uh, countries. In those places where you have state capacity that is diminished to protect human rights, or, and perhaps more importantly, state willingness to protect human rights being diminished, that places a much stronger ethical responsibility on corporations to protect uh, human rights and to go even beyond the respecting human rights, which is anticipated in the UN guiding principles, and perhaps to play an even more active role. So with regard to this more active role that corporations um, themselves could play in protecting human rights in situations where the state may not be willing, as you say, or um, able to, what are some of the ways in which corporations could potentially protect these human rights, given that a lot of their own work in the area will, of course, not be regulatory. It'll be um, more company-driven. It'll be voluntary. Let's start with the notion that these are business and strategic decisions that companies are making. These are not things that occur in a state of nature. Rather, these are the result of intentional business strategies that companies are undertaking that can either protect human rights or fail to protect human rights or perhaps even violate human rights in some sort of way. So in the current research I'm doing on human trafficking, we start with the notion that these are intentional business decisions that companies make. So let's take something like outsourcing or managing a supply chain. 
we can understand why a company like an electronics manufacturer would outsource some of its raw materials procurement or some of its manufacturing. Take a company like uh, Apple, for example. Apple manages its value chain to focus on product design and retailing because that's where it can add value. It makes sense from an economic standpoint for Apple to outsource manufacturing and raw materials procurement of things like tin and tungsten, which are minerals that are very important in electronics manufacturing. So, so far, so good. We understand the strategic decisions that companies make that can then have knock-on effects on human rights. What we're asking companies to think about with regard to human rights violations and human trafficking is how can they act affirmatively to protect and respect uh, human rights and ultimately to make a, a difference? And this is where we get to the notion of structural injustice. One of my mentors uh, was the late Iris Marion Young, who was a political philosopher who wrote heavily on issues related to responsibility and social justice. And the point that Iris Marion Young made is there are many issues for which we have a structural injustice. So no one party is responsible for the structural injustice. Rather, we're all responsible in various sorts of ways. And if we're all responsible, then we have affirmative ethical obligations to act in a way to alleviate that responsibility and to make a positive change. And this, I think, contrasts with notions of due diligence in the business and human rights arena. It's one thing to say to an electronics manufacturer, we want you to adopt a checklist to make sure that you're not enmeshed in human rights violations. But we know that a lot of these human rights violations can occur two or three levels deep into a supply chain. So what we're asking companies to do is to take a broader ethical responsibility to do things like reduce the extent of their supply chains, which will allow them to better supervise the suppliers that they do have in a place, or to be advocates for action on human rights violations and uh, human uh, trafficking. So the point to make is that with power comes significant responsibility. And in places where corporations have significant uh, power, which, by the way, includes the United States and the UK just as much as it includes other uh, countries, when you have power, you have responsibility. And so in some sense, what I'm calling for in my own research and my co-authors are in the research we're doing together is for corporations to take on a much broader notion of what it means to respect human rights and what it means to be a truly ethical company. Uh, is it something that you've been finding whenever you've been looking at corporate rights and corporate attempts to uh, protect human rights, that there does seem to be something of a lowest common denominator among corporate respect for human rights. So, for example, if it's incorporated in the UK, but it also has interests in Zambia, would you say that they would tend towards whatever the lowest state regulations are? Have you found um, anything along those lines or do they would they tend to adhere as a company to the higher rules or does it just depend? I think I would phrase the question a little bit uh, differently, and I think it starts with the whole discourse around rights. 
About 15 years ago, I was doing some research on the ways that companies talk about responsibility and rights. And what we found was that companies love to talk about philanthropy. They love to talk about voluntary actions that they're engaging in. But when we did this research 10 and 12 and 15 years ago, what we found was that rights were a much harder sell. And the reason for that is pretty simple. If it's a right, it's something you have to follow every place where you do business. It's a pre-existing external obligation that's binding on your uh, company. Now, if we understand it from that perspective, we can understand why companies have been reluctant to embrace human rights. Now, thankfully, we're starting to see more and more and more of this from the standpoint of companies. But I think what we're also seeing is that companies want to limit their responsibility in some sort of way. So we talk, for example, about due diligence. And due diligence is, of course, an important way of thinking about how companies discharge their responsibilities to respect human rights. But you can actually engage in due diligence in a way that limits your responsibility, where you say, we simply have followed a a checklist, and we followed the checklist, and if anything bad happens, it's because of a rogue, rogue actor. It's not because of something that we did, because, look, we did the due diligence. So if we go back to the original uh, question, I think companies would want to try to follow a similar standard in every place where they operate. So they would not want to be seen as saying, we're going to follow one standard in the UK and another standard in Zambia. Rather, what companies would want to do is at the corporate level, try to limit their responsibility in some sort of way. And this is where I think the activism related to business and human rights becomes really significant. The reason why business and human rights has made such a difference and progressed so much over the last 10 years is that you have activist groups, whether in the US or the UK or in places like uh, Zambia or Lebanon, Those activist groups have been pushing companies at the corporate level to embrace more fully human rights obligations. And so if the goal is to try to improve human rights in Zambia, I would argue that what we want to do is we want to push companies at the corporate level to embrace one uniform human rights standard and to embrace responsibility for outcomes related to human rights in every single place they operate, as opposed to trying to differentiate. Is that a question which could be phrased in a more economical way? So if you raise to companies the idea that having one set of rules across their entire operation um, is something which should be more cost-effective for them, is that would that be considered a more beneficial way or a more effective way, rather, of getting them to adopt practices that respect human rights? I think the tendency of a lot of companies is to engage in a kind of regulatory arbitrage to say, we're going to find locales that will let us get away with as much as we possibly can. So if we think about this in terms of taxes, for example, we know that companies want to seek out lower tax uh, regimes. Your question is really interesting because I think it 
gets at a fundamental issue, which is how do companies justify investments in business in human rights? Because it does feel like when I talk to people inside of corporations, they're constantly having to think about how they justify the expense of engaging in human rights due diligence or auditing or any number of other odd things. So a couple of approaches that could be useful is to say to companies, Human rights are universal standards. You ought to apply them everywhere. And if you do that everywhere and your competitors do that everywhere, it's ultimately better for everybody. So I think there's an awful lot of good argumentation in terms of telling companies, rather than trying to be cute about it and to say, we're going to follow these standards in a country where people can pay attention to us and a different set of standards where we don't think that anybody is looking, we're going to agree on some sort of standard, but we're also going to take a further step. We're going to work with other companies to adopt a uniform set of uh, standards that we all sign up to, that we all agree to, to minimize the likelihood that other companies are going to engage in arbitrage against us. But that also lets companies to pool knowledge and expertise in a way that lets them ultimately reduce the costs associated with human rights compliance, and that may ultimately be good for everybody. You raised the issue there of corporations all being involved um, under the same umbrella with similar kinds of voluntary regulation. So, for example, frameworks or initiatives like the UN Global Compact, the UNGC and the International Standards Organization. Do you think the sort of vast array of different organizations which companies can apply to and sign up to affects in any way the effectiveness of their adherence to or promotion of human rights standards? When I was working in shareholder activism, a very common complaint of companies was you're asking us to sign up to standard A and reporting regime uh, C, and it simply is uh, too much. Can't you just give us one set of uh, standards so that we can comply with those standards and be done with it? And I think I would answer that question in a couple of different ways. The, sec the first is this is an area in which we are still developing a consensus on the right way to proceed. In some of my research, I've been focusing on the question of implementation. How do we move from formulating human rights expectations faced by businesses to actually implementing them? And then the third step in that is obviously the outcomes that are associated with the implementation. I think we're only really at the beginning of what we need to know about how we implement human rights standards and what the practical outcomes of those implementations are. So on the one hand, I would say we're still in an era of experimentation and learning, and it would be problematic to coalesce around one standard and then foreclose future progress in that uh, area. On the other hand, I would also make the argument that from the company's standpoint, Companies are very pragmatic. Obviously, companies are in business to make a, a profit. They're facing significant competitive uh, pressures. The corporate executives I've talked to have 
generally speaking, been willing to embrace voluntary forms of responsibility. They've been willing, albeit a little bit more slowly, to embrace uh, human rights. But they're also concerned about the costs associated with this sort of compliance, particularly when you layer on all sorts of regulatory compliance that they have to engage in. So what would be interesting would be to think about this question. Over what time horizon is there coalescence around a set of human rights standards and measurement of outcomes that would allow companies to figure out what to do in this particular area and respond in a way that would discharge their human rights obligations and also to satisfy stakeholders? I don't think we're there yet, but I could see a day where we could get there. And then the question is, how do we engage in incremental change to continually up those standards and expectations of companies over time? So obviously, one of the issues with persuading corporations to engage in human rights by whatever means is always going to be cost and whether it's cost effective. One of the things I've been wondering is whether the sort of commodity driven nature of business today by necessity has really affected people's rights on the ground. So as I think you've mentioned um, in one of your recent articles with the issue of human trafficking, where labor is very commoditized and they're only seen as another step in the chain and another cost that they have to pay, has this contributed significantly to um, abuses of human rights, do you think? Or could it be used, could cost be used as a way to improve that? I think one of the challenges right now in the business and human rights arena is exactly around the issue of commodification of labor, which is really, to me, another way of talking about the dehumanization of labor. We talk in our article on human trafficking about the distinction between the product supply chain and the human supply chain, that when companies engage in supply chain management, they tend to focus on getting products. And that, of course, that makes sense because any product is made up of an interlinked set of activities and there are practical issues associated with managing that supply chain. What gets lost along the way is the fact that behind each step of the supply chain are real human beings, what the stakeholder Ed Freeman calls names and faces. So every supply chain has human beings behind it, and one of the real dangers of a lot of corporate practices that we see in a number of industries, I'll talk about apparel in a moment, is that they tend toward commodification of labor and a kind of depersonalization. So the example that I often use is the fast fashion industry. So places like H&M and Zara and Primark, these are companies that have very fast product cycles where if a product is in store for a month, it's already going to be heavily discounted and the whole value proposition is around new and disposable and fast and cheap. And of course, the human cost associated with that is absolutely immense. So the shopper getting a article of fast fashion clothing is not thinking about the fact that it was a real human being that sewed that piece of clothing that that person may wear two or three times. So I think there is a trend in modern capitalist production toward greater commodification of labor. We're losing the human element of labor and we're losing the human element of production. In some other research that I'm doing on scientific management and its legacy for today, 
scientific management was this notion that people can essentially be managed like machines. So you break down a task into component parts, you train a worker to do a particular component part, and the company becomes much more productive. Now, when scientific management was developed in the early part of the 20th century, people were concerned back then that that would lead to dehumanization of labor. I would argue that we're seeing that as a more and more persistent trend, but not just in the ways that we would normally think about it, like apparel supply chains, but in things like call centers, for example, or in delivery services. Uh, In Lebanon, where I live right now, you have an army of underemployed people that are essentially working for 2 or $3 an hour in delivery services. And when I think about these issues as a business ethicist, one of the things I really am calling on people to do is recover the human in economic production, that behind every single thing we consume is a real human being that has the same aspirations, the same rights, and the same humanity as you do or I do. And so the challenge of supply chain management in an environment that is becoming more and more competitive, in which cost is a significant issue for companies, is to recover the humanity of it. Very much agree with that, definitely. Slightly moving away from the corporate side of things, one of the things you hear a lot about in the news these days, whether on social media or otherwise, is the use of boycotts against companies such as, you know, these big companies, H&M, Zara. I was wondering... What do you think the effectiveness of such action is in that situation? Do you think it has any impact on companies if it's not taken up wholesale by basically everybody? Or is it useful in the sense that it gets the message out there at all? I've always been very skeptical of a consumer-driven approach to corporate responsibility. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is when boycotts proliferate, it's really difficult to separate the signal from the noise. So if the signal is we're concerned about business and human rights obligations, it seems that a more integrative approach that goes across companies would be much more effective at getting the signal out and getting the message out that this becomes incredibly important. Just from a very practical perspective, it's really hard to keep track of the sheer number of boycotts that are going on. And the reality is that Consumers will often say, well, I obviously take these things into account in making buying decisions because I'm a good person. I think there's an awful lot of social desirability bias that's going on in that respect. Consumers want to think of themselves as ethical, but if you look at their actual practical buying behavior, how many people are not going to Zara or H&M or Primark uh, as opposed to the number of people who are? How many people, when Apple was accused of complicity in human rights violations at Foxconn, actually gave up their iPhones? And if they did, where were they going to go? Because other manufacturers had the same set of issues. I feel like a lot of times consumer-driven boycotts don't really 
move the needle very much in terms of actual behavior on the parts of uh, corporations, they can have some small effects on getting consumers to become at least aware of these issues. I do think it makes much more sense, however, to have a much more integrative approach that's looking, for example, at an entire sector. So let's take fast fashion, which I was talking about earlier. It would be really interesting to think about formulating a campaign that would address all the fast fashion retailers, not singling anyone out, but getting those companies to think in much more broad and systemic terms about how their business practices in sourcing decisions are giving rise to human rights violations, but then also making consumers aware of how their buying behavior can contribute to those sorts of systemic human rights abuses. I think that sort of campaign could be much more useful in terms of raising consumer consciousness and then pairing that with a request of companies to change their behavior. Would you say then that it's more useful, it seems to be that this is what you're saying, it's more useful to make suggestions to corporations as to how they can improve, how they can change, rather than necessarily outright condemnation? I think that if a consumer is going to say something to a company, there should be a real threat of some sort of uh, sanction. So I think a lot of the online activism that we see in general, whether it's human rights or any other issue, is more to make the person engaging in the activism, like forwarding a tweet, feel better about themselves as opposed to actually bringing about uh, systemic uh, change. So let's say you had a group of students at unis in the UK that said they would not shop at any of the fast fashion retailers for a month or two months. So there was real systemic action and they didn't shop there. Now, those are really the core demographics that those retailers are trying to uh, sell to. Would that have much more of an impact than uh, people retweeting uh, something about a particular uh, campaign? So whatever uh, consumers do or whatever anybody does in the area of business and human rights, or for that matter, corporate social responsibility, needs to move beyond the symbolic and toward the substantive. And so that would be my general bias. How do we engage in targeted uh, actions that are substantive that really get companies' attention, and then campaigns can move from place to place to place. So we can start in one sector and move to another sector. I think that's a much more workable approach than a more scattershot approach uh, to engaging in activism that really says more about the person engaging in it than any sort of likelihood of actual change. So my final question for you, just before we wrap up, is where do you see the issue of business and human rights then going in the future? Do you see corporations taking on board specific suggestions that you and other academics and Mm -hmm. um, activists have made? Or is development much more piecemeal and organic? And are they simply implementing bits and pieces of certain things and not others? I think we're really only at the beginning of what we need to know about how we move from principles related to human rights or justifying human rights obligations of businesses to first implementing those obligations. So how do companies 
act in a way that's actually going to make a difference in the lives of people who are either having their human rights violated or at risk of having their human rights violated, and to victims of human rights violations, how do companies then engage in effective remedy? We really don't know as much as we should about the effective implementation of business obligations related to human rights, and we know even far less about outcomes associated with corporate action in this area. So does this make a difference? If a company adopts a human rights policy in a couple of years, does that then actually lead to the lives of people being better? So when we think about corporate action in this particular area, what I always talk about is a portfolio approach. I think there's an awful lot that academics can bring to the conversation about the ways that companies conceptualize human rights obligations, the way they implement responses to those obligations, and then measuring outcomes. And Academics, I think, have done an awful lot of work in terms of developing conceptual frameworks, ideas related to outcomes measurement, and I would hope that companies would take those things on board. However, I've also been an academic long enough to know that managers are not reading my papers. I wish they were. I think it would be a better world if academics were reading the, or if managers were reading the papers of academics, including my own, but I'm realistic enough to know that that's probably not the case. So academics are contributing to the store of knowledge with regard to business and human rights, but what's needed is more energy from consumers, which even given all the problems that I noted earlier, but also pressure groups. And this can include uh, churches, civil society organizations, whether we're talking about international NGOs or groups on the ground in countries that are being affected by human rights violations. I think we need to increase our knowledge about how to conceptualize, operationalize, and measure business activities related to human rights at the same time that we are constantly pressuring our companies, and this is where activists and civil society organizations become incredibly important, for companies to up their game in terms of actually taking action in this particular area. It's often said that power doesn't yield anything without a demand, and I think that's very, very much true in this area. The good news about business and human rights is that a remarkable amount of progress has been made in the past couple of decades. And a lot of this is due to the Ruggie framework and the guiding principles. A lot of this is due to activism. A lot of this is due to the storehouse of academic knowledge that we're generating but I think we're at a significant inflection point. I think that businesses are understanding that they need to embrace human rights obligations because their stakeholders are expecting them to, and they're constantly getting pressure to do so. Where we need to move now is to move from the embrace of those human rights obligations in whatever form companies are embracing them and doing two things. The first is pushing companies to go deeper in terms of talking about how they implement their human rights obligations and satisfy them and how they measure progress toward them. And I think there's much more work that could be done by companies in this area. Using academic uh, knowledge would obviously be incredibly uh, useful. But this is not a 
issue for which there is simply a consensus that we all agree upon and we simply implement forever and ever. I feel like we constantly need to interrogate the issue of business and human rights in terms of what more companies could do to embrace different sorts of human rights within their broad remit uh, associated with their core business operations and how ultimately to do this better and more effectively. So at the same time that where there is consensus around a human rights obligation of business, we need to know more about how to implement it and how to measure progress. We also have to ask the question, what more could companies be doing in this area as businesses to ultimately make the world a better and more just place? It's definitely reassuring to know that things are obviously taking steps forward. And even if there is room for improvement, that it is being undertaken. So thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you very much for having me.